you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. Luke and chapter 22 is where we will be in our time together this morning. Once you get there, drop down to verse 31. And we will be reading 31 through 38. It'll be behind me on the screen. My translation for you to follow along there as well. You got it? Say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 31. The Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, Simon, Simon, behold, said Jesus, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Amen. This is God's word to make God right. It's eternal truths on all of our hearts. Apart from the Bible... If someone were to ask you what book you most treasure, I wonder what you'd say. Perhaps there's a book for you that you've read it over and over again, and it never gets old. Or maybe there's one that had a great impact on your life or your faith or, or gave you sort of aha moment. Do any of you have a book like that? Or you don't read? Or <laughs> you are looking at me like, books? What are, I don't. For me, it's a book called Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which is a fantasy book. You thought I was going to say some stuffy, obscure theological book from like the 1500s, didn't you? It's a fantasy book written in the 80s, all right? <laughs> Dragons of Autumn Twilight, and it, I, I treasure it because it's the book that when I was a kid, it gave me a love for reading and, and sort of unlocked my imagination. It's the first time I was pulled into the story to the point that I was emotionally invested into the characters. Do you have a book like that? You know, Charles Spurgeon, who might as well be Pastor Emeritus here because I quote him so much, is one of the most famous and influential preachers in the last 200 years. So he, was, he addressed this similar question. Somebody asked him this. And he said this. He said, next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe I have read it through at least 100 times. And Spurgeon quoted Bunyan's allegory often in his sermons. It was the first gift that he presented to his bride-to-be, Susanna. He frequently visited Bunyan's tomb in Bunhill Field and even preached the installation service for its refurbishment in 1860. And beyond the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress is the most published book in English. Since it was first published in 1678, it has never gone out of print. Many, many people would answer the question the way that Spurgeon did, and for a good reason. You know, even a cursory reading of Pilgrim's Progress, and, and you see why it's so popular and why it's so enduring over time throughout all these generations. Few books have endured time like Pilgrim's Progress has. Bunyan masterfully communicates two truths of Scripture that seem on the surface to be intention, that man is utterly unable to procure salvation for himself so that if he is to be saved, rescue must come completely from God through the work of Christ, and that once a person is saved by God, they're to pursue obedience in light of that rescue, and their growth in the Lord is through intentional partnership with the Holy Spirit, even as God supplies power to grow. He communicates these twin truths. But Bunyan also reminds us that the latter work of making our way through this life as a Christian is hard. Yes? It's fraught with danger. 
there are many times we will find ourselves doubting. Have you ever doubted? Being allured by the wares of Vanity Fair, enticed to become complacent, or the temptation to bypass the difficult road in favor of shortcuts, or the appeal of rote religion that chagrins a changed heart. And while Bunyan offers many memorable scenes throughout the book, there's one in particular that stands out that I want to tell you about. After the main character, Christian, had gone through the wicket gate, which is the allegory for the narrow road that Jesus talks about in Sermon on the Mount, he goes to the cross, his burden rolls away, he is given armor to protect him on the journey, and the very next scene, he encounters a monster called Apollon, who is sort of a demon. And Apollon asks Christian where he is going and from whence he came, and continuously tries to convince Christian to forsake Christ and follow him instead. Well, at one point, Apollon even lists all the things that Christian has done wrong in his life to try to convince him that Jesus wouldn't want him. And, you know, he's too big of a screw-up, too big of a sinner. And to this, Christian responds, all this is true. In fact, there's much more you left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Apollon then responds, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I have come out here to purposefully oppose you. And Christian did not back away. He replied, be careful of what you are doing, for I am on the king's highway, the way of holiness, so watch yourself. So eventually they stop talking and they engage in physical battle. And Christian takes many painful shots. He grows weak and tired, but with the little strength he had left, he grabs the sword that he was given and he struck a fatal wound to the enemy. Immediately after the battle, Christian said, I will give thanks right here and right now to him who has delivered me out of the mouth of the lion that is Apollon. And he was then provided with some leaves for healing by an unseen hand, and he continues his journey to the valley of the shadow of death. This isn't just the experience of Christian and the Pilgrim's Progress, is it? This battle with the one who opposes Christ and causes painful wounds isn't unique to this character of fiction. This is the experience of every Christian at various points of their lives, yes? And this is why this allegorical book, written nearly 305 years ago, has touched so many believers. The fact of the Christian life is that while we are making our way to the celestial city, we will encounter the enemy. And he will tempt us to despair, as the old hymn says, by reminding us of the guilt within. And that we are to engage in battle, and we have been equipped to do so, and we may take some painful blows, but we can fight and win if we make use of the tools available to us. This is the Christian experience, this is your experience, and this is what we see in our text this morning. Here we are, the final interaction between Jesus and the disciples before they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. The mood then is somber one, but it's one that is filled with warnings as well as comforts for the disciples and for us. So this is what we'll do in our time together this morning, okay? We're going to have three points, but each point will have a warning, an encouragement, and an action step, okay? Three points, each one will have a warning, an encouragement, and an action step. So point one, Satan would have you. There's your warning. But Jesus intercedes for you. There's your encouragement. So rely on him. There's your action step. Let me say it again. That's a long one, isn't it? Satan would have you, but Jesus intercedes for you. So rely on him. So the placement of this interaction means that Jesus is with his disciples still in the upper room right after the Last Supper, okay? It's also right after the disciples debated who among them was the greatest, to which Jesus corrected their understanding of greatness as we explored last week. Now this time, Jesus initiates the discussion by saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now the double use of Peter's pre-call name would clue the disciples in on the fact that what Jesus is saying is especially serious and heavy. It should remind us readers of Luke of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together like a hen that gathers her brood, but you would not have it. Jesus saying Simon twice has the same sort of effect. Not only does it signal the seriousness of what he's about to say, but it also stresses Jesus' concern for Peter. 
his deep feelings of affection and sadness, as it did when he wept over Jerusalem. He cared for them. He desired them, but they rejected him, and he cares for Peter too. Here, it is about something that is coming on the horizon, and it isn't just for Peter that Jesus is directing this. You look down at your text, you look at verse 31, you see the word you, Y-O-U is used twice, right? Both times, it's plural, meaning it's a warning for all the disciples at once. So what's the warning? Satan demanded to have you. Why? That he might sift you like wheat. Satan has in his sights the followers of Christ. He demands to have them that he might destroy them. He wants to find ways to attack them that they might fail and that their failure might seem as if it's ultimate. He wants them to reject Jesus, to forsake their allegiance to him, to run and not return. Says Jesus, he would sift you like wheat. Now, this isn't a phrase we typically use in our context, but it means something like our phrases of picking someone to pieces or taking someone apart. Satan's goal is to bring people to ruin, and he has his sights set on those who would follow Christ. This sort of exchange reminds the, us that this world is not spiritually neutral ground. And, this is important, proximity to Jesus does not equal immunity from satanic attacks. Here we have Jesus' handpicked followers. They become leaders of the church in its infancy. They have walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, heard his sermons, served with him, ate and drank with him, and have been rejected with him during his ministry. And yet, this does not make them immune from the onslaught of the devil. In the same way, no follower should imagine, no follower of Christ should imagine his or herself immune from Satan's attacks. This means, my Christian friend, Satan has his sights on you, too. He would have you. He would sift you like wheat. Spurgeon said, the nearer you live to God, the more you can expect Satan's opposition. There is sure to be contention wherever the harvest is plenteous and where the farmer's toil is well rewarded. So not only can we expect to be targeted by the devil, but we can expect it more the closer we get to Jesus. And the more the church focuses on him alone. The world, do you know this, my friend, is a battleground. And now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, the devil, who knows that he's on borrowed time, is doing what he can to attack those who would give their allegiance to Jesus. He is making a last-ditch effort to bring the church to ruin. And he will do whatever he can to get your affections and attentions off of Christ. You know that? Whatever he could do to get you to not give yourself to Christ, he will do. And like we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about Judas' betrayal, he is crafty enough to use even the cares of life to get you away from Jesus. His attacks don't have to be the big and painful ones that we often imagine. It could be as simple as distracting you from Bible reading and prayer and regular attendance at the church gathering. He is so crafty that he used the mundane things of life to steal your affections. As long as you seek less of Christ and more of the world, he is satisfied. You all are surely uh, familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? It's a series of fictional letters from a senior demon named Screwtape written to a junior demon named Wormwood with advice on how to tempt and distract the person that this demon has been assigned. Well, if you very first letter, Screwtape tells of a time he almost lost the person that he was assigned to, who was an atheist. He said, you know, almost 20 years of work of keeping him away from God was nearly undone simply because the man picked up a Bible and began to read it. This is what Screwtape said. He said, if I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. To this, says Screwtape, God suggested to the man 
that this reading was more important than lunch, but Screwtape countered this by telling the man that he could simply put aside the word, go eat lunch, and come back to it. And it worked. The man put the word down, went to lunch, and never came back to the word. You see there? What got the man away from word? Just lunch. Gotta eat, right? And that's the thing, isn't it? The activities that edge out Bible reading and prayer and church attendance, the spiritual disciplines, they're sometimes, you know, because of unrepentant sin. But oftentimes they're just ordinary things that make us busy or content. They aren't big sins, they're just ordinary life stuff that we spend too much time on, that we can also justify, that edge out more devotion to Christ or things that will bring us nearer to him. In a later letter, Screwtape says this, do you remember, do remember the only things that matter is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, a gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. My friend, do you realize that there is a battle being waged for the souls of people? You know this? And do you realize that there are no conscientious objectors in the war for souls? And do you realize... That Satan wants to take your eyes off of Jesus. Whether it is through the sorrows of life that make you doubt the goodness of God or the prosperity of the world that makes you feel like you don't need him. Or even the trivial and the mundane. In any case, Satan is satisfied. He tends to sift you like wheat. Would you let him? This seems to be bad news. Yes? That Satan would have us could potentially be a frightening thing. That is, unless you realize what Jesus says next, which is that he has interceded for Peter and the disciples so that their faith might not fail. This is an incredible encouragement, isn't it? Here's what we are reminded. Satan cannot do whatever he wants to do. Do you know that? We must not imagine that Jesus and Satan are equal and opposite forces. Jesus is creator, Satan is creature. Satan can't even do anything unless he is allowed to by God to do it. He's like a dog on a leash, and the other end is firmly secure in the hand of Christ. It was Martin Luther who said, even the devil is God's devil. Francis Anderson says, similarly, Satan may be the chief mischief maker of the universe, but he is a mere creature, puny compared with the Lord. Now, I mean, what's the alternative? That the devil is capable of doing things that surprise God? That Satan can do things that God is powerless to stop? That is the frightening prospect. But it isn't true, because God is sovereign even over the devil. This, this interaction should remind us of the book of Job, right? Like Satan couldn't do anything to Job that he didn't receive permission to do. He couldn't just attack God's servant. He needed to ask God permission. And if God said no, Satan could do nothing. That's the sense that we have here. Satan demanded to have Peter and the disciples, but Jesus intervened. That doesn't mean that Satan won't attack Peter. We know he will. But it does mean that Jesus steps in to make sure that whatever way Peter fails, that his failure isn't ultimate and it isn't final. Jesus intercedes for his saints. Do you realize that Jesus intercedes for you, beloved of God? That Jesus makes intercession for you. He petitions for you. He steps in for you. He rebuffs the devil for you. He is always at work for your good. Romans 8, 37, 34 says, who is, it, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That's present tense, isn't it? Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. What an awesome truth. So when we hear Satan would have you and Satan is crafty, we need not despair because Satan will attack us, yes. But Jesus is always interceding for us that we may not ultimately fail. We may fail. You ever fail? But our failure would not be ultimate and that our failure would not separate us from God if we are in Christ. As Edward said, Satan can provoke a conflict, but he cannot determine its outcome. We're not promised a lack of trials, but we are also not on our own when we go through them. Jesus has interceded. He is interceding. He will intercede for us. That's good news. I know you're Baptist, you never talk, but isn't that good news? So, so with these two truths in hand, that Satan would have you, that Jesus intercede for you, what action step must we take in this first point? Clearly, Jesus isn't calling for passive indifference. The fact that he intercedes for us does not absolve us from action. There is a war being fought, and we are to fight back. But how? We must rely on Christ and his power to overcome. We must rely on Christ and his power to overcome. See, see what Peter says to all of this in verse 33? He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, we have to give Peter credit. Because he knows where all of this is heading, doesn't he? That Jesus will be arrested in a few hours and he will be executed. Peter says, I'll be with you through it all. And he, he really believes that. Well, what Peter is wrong about is his own ability to resist the devil. He is overconfident and puffed up. He is relying more on his grip on Jesus than he is on Jesus' grip on him. He is relying more on his love for Jesus rather than on Jesus' love for him, and this is why he will fail. It's easy to say, right, that he will go to prison and death with Jesus as he sits safely in the upper room, secluded from the rest of the world. But when push comes to shove, Peter will deny Jesus because Peter is relying on himself and his strength, not on Jesus and his. Chuck Lawless and William Cook say this, Jesus knew reality. He knew that Simon Peter's confidence was unfounded. Within hours, the apostle would deny even knowing Jesus. He would do exactly what he said he would not do. But I doubt anyone could have convinced him of that when he verbalized his commitment to Jesus. And it is, that is precisely the problem with pride and overconfidence. We do not recognize them in our lives until after we have fallen. Simon Peter likely did not recognize his issue until he wept bitterly at the sound of the rooster's crowing. Peter thinks too highly of his ability to resist the devil. He is puffed up and self-assured. And you know something? He is just like us. In our culture, self-reliance and self-confidence is not bad. It's the goal. We are told that we should be self-reliant and proud. The cardinal sin in a self-help culture like ours is actually low self-esteem. To not believe in yourself. To not believe you have the power inside, right, to overcome anything if you just believe in yourself and try. That's what all the Disney movies, all the Disney princess movies that I've watched have told me. Just believe in yourself. It's on the inside. You could do it. And so we think we have it within us to overcome anything. We are the strong and confident. We can accomplish anything if we just work hard enough and believe we could do it. But the Bible tells us that we must never get to a point where we think we don't need God to overcome sin and the onslaughts of the devil. Self-confidence, listen, is not a Christian virtue. Okay? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you think you could take on temptation and sin and the devil on your own, you are puffed up. And you need to return again to the basic truth of the gospel, which says that we're so fallen and weak that it took nothing less than God becoming flesh and dying and rising for us to be redeemed. So if we are helpless in salvation, we are helpless in sustaining ourselves. Do you ever wonder if you'd be able to withstand persecution? Like, you ever think of the early church or the persecuted church around the world? 
and wonder if you could hold fast to Christ in the face of prison threats and death? Do you? You think you could do it? I've heard Christians boast about their ability to stand up for the gospel if, if our government, right, somehow turned into persecutors of Christians. But how can we be so confident when we often don't even have the strength to, in ourselves to turn off the computer or put down the phone or push away the wine glass or beer bottle or stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or stop gossiping or stop being greedy or stop booking yourself into oblivion, which has made the affirmation Bible reading prayer and church attendance an optional extra that we never seem to have time for? How can we be confident in ourselves? We need the strength of the Lord, and praise God, it is available to us. This is both the, the good news and the bad news. If you fight on your own, you won't win. But that's good news, too, because you don't have to fight by your own might. When did Jesus ever say you need to be strong? Weakness is the way. A weak faith in the right object is all that is required. What's Jesus telling us? That we don't need to be confident in our own strength because his power is available to us to fight and win like Christian was against Apollon. Tom Schreiner said in his commentary, Peter will not fend off Satan because of his own strength or piety. His perseverance instead finds its root in Jesus' prayer, and so does ours. You can endure. You can defeat sin. You can fight and win, but only if you rely on Jesus and his great might and not your own strength or piety. You can only overcome if you are banking more on Jesus' love for you than you are on your love for him. You can only defeat sin and the devil if Jesus is more beautiful to you than the passing beauties of this world. Confidence is good, but it should be placed in our Lord and not in ourself. Satan would have you, but Jesus intercedes, so rely on him and his strength. He's sovereign even over the devil, and the fight between Jesus and Satan isn't fair. Jesus is mightier and will in time crush the old serpent's head under his almighty boot. So why wouldn't we rely on him? So what does, Peter, what, what does Jesus say to Peter's overconfident zeal? This leads us to our second point, point two. You will fail. There's the warning. But Jesus offers forgiveness. There's the encouragement. So repent and strengthen. There's your action steps. You will fail, but Jesus offers forgiveness. So repent and strengthen. Jesus tells Peter the future with, a sh with shocking accuracy. He says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter can be confident if he wants to, but Jesus knows exactly what will happen in a few hours. Peter won't only deny Jesus, he will deny that he even knows him. You can look down. You look at your text down a few verses to, to verses 54 through 62 in this very chapter. And see that Jesus was right, and Peter was wrong. Peter trusts himself, and he fails spectacularly. He loses his nerve. He can't even affirm his association with Jesus to a little girl. Peter fails just as Jesus said he would. And you will fail too. And I will fail too. In this life, none of us will get to a point of perfection where we never fail, never mess up, Never sin, never forsake Jesus through our words, thoughts, or deed. We will all fail, and we will fail often. Do you know this? We will think things we should not think. We will say things we should not say. We will do things we should not do. Our motives will oftentimes be bad and self-serving, our actions will frequently be selfish, and we will feel like frauds. Can we all not relate to the words in the song we're going to sing after the sermon? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
You know, the hymn was written by a man named Robert Robinson when he was 23 years old. Robinson had responded to a sermon he heard from George Whitfield, who warned his hearers, as he often did, to flee the wrath to come. But it is said that Robinson did, as he got older, wander from the gospel. There's a story often told but unverified that just before he died, Robinson found himself riding in a stagecoach next to a woman who was singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the woman noticed that Robinson was affected by her singing. She asked him what he thought about the hymn. And the story says that Robinson's eyes filled with tears when he replied, Madame, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. It is also said by some that the lady gently replied, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. We don't know the state of Robinson's soul when he died. We do know that he felt acutely familiar with our human tendency to wander from Christ. Whether that be in sin, open rebellion, or just being tossed to and fro by the cares and love for this world. The fact is, we will all fail. This is the truth of living in between this world and the next. And if you If you think you won't fail, then you sound more like Peter than you think. And I say this in love, you should get over yourself. The key, however, yes, is that is what we do with that failure. It's not if we'll fail, it's when and how often. So what will we do when that happens? Satan will come in, you know this, at those points of failure, and he'll tell us that we're unlovable, unworthy sinners. He'll tempt us to forget the gospel. He'll tell us our failures are total and purposeless. He'll want us to believe we've blown it too big to be loved and forgiven and used by God. And my friend, listen, these are lies from hell. Instead, at those points, we should remind ourselves what Luther said, which is, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. We ought to see the incredible grace and love of Jesus here. He tells Peter he will fail. He knows it's going to happen with certainty. He also knows the failure will be an open denial of him at his most crucial hour. And yet, Jesus sees the failure as not total. And he offers Peter to return, even in light of that failure. Incredible grace, yes? He knew when he called Peter that Peter was an overconfident and weak sinner who frequently put his foot in his mouth and would eventually abandon him and deny him, and yet he called him anyway, and he knows that about you too, and he offers grace. Again, the key when we fail, is what we do with it. See, the wrong way is to wallow in it, to sit in it, to believe the lie that it's too big, that God could never forgive you. The wrong way is to make it your identity, to think the failure defines you rather than who Christ says you are. The right way is to do what Jesus says Peter will do, which is turn, repent, and then use it for his own good and the good of others. So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? The difference between Peter and Judas was that Peter repented and returned. Peter's failure was a failure of nerve, not a heart denial of Jesus. Judas did not love Jesus in heart, and he may have been sorrowful, yes, for his actions and the consequences, but that was it. He never repented and returned to Jesus. He never asked for forgiveness or turned to live for God. He just felt remorse, and it sent him to his death. Mike McKinley says, Peter, on the other hand, repented. He wept bitter tears for his sins, but he didn't just weep. You could tell that he repented for his sins because his life changed after that moment. He became bold and courageous for Christ. After the crucifixion, he joined with the other disciples for prayer. He was the first disciple to enter the empty tomb. After Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Peter was reconciled to him and received forgiveness from him, just as Jesus had predicted. This is why Jesus allowed Peter to fail. 
and why he allows us to fail too. We are to see our failures and be honest about what they are. Recognize our need for God, remember his goodness and love for us, and then repent and return. Listen, we can even use our failures for our good. Like how we talked about not wasting our trials, we should not waste our failures either by wallowing in them or by thinking we are forsaken of God because of them. Jesus promises, as Augustine said, forgiveness to our repentance, but not tomorrow for our procrastinations. Hear me, my friends, your failure, either in the past or in the present or in the future, need not be complete and total. It can be temporary, and Christ offers forgiveness for even the biggest failures. But we must turn, admit, and repent. See, repentance is not a word we moderns like. Is It's so negative. But biblical repentance is a good thing because it is an offer from God to turn and be forgiven. Repentance, therefore, is not what especially bad Christians do. Repentance is the normal Christian life. If not, it not only is the beginning of the Christian life, it's a mark of ongoing reform into Christ-likeness. Church Father Chrysostom said, be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Beloved, behold the sovereignty of God. He can use even your failures for your good. He can use even the attacks of the devil for his purpose. And If you don't think God could use your failures or sufferings or pains for your good and his glory, then how do you explain the cross? Was not that the height of the wickedness of man? To nail the perfect God-man to the tree. And yet God used the evil intents of men and the devil for the ultimate good of the world. If what appears to be the greatest tragedy in the history of the world is actually the most blessed event, Christians can view their circumstances, challenges, pains, and failures in a whole new way. You see what else Jesus tells Peter? He says that after he turns, he will what? Strengthen his brothers. This means that not only can failure be used for your good, it can be used for the good of others. We could use our failure to help our fellow believers avoid our mistakes or when we see the signs in others that we had in us that led to our failures, we could warn them before they get too deep. So I wonder, friend, do you see your failures as opportunities to help others? See, Jesus again reminds us of the importance of the church and of having meaningful community within it, doesn't he? Satan would have us alone away from our brothers and sisters in Christ who will hold us accountable and encourage us to keep on the right path, to not use our failures to strengthen others. You know, as time goes on, more and more people want to claim to be Christians while forsaking the church. Isn't that true? They say, I could be a Christian and not go to church. And you know what? That's true. You could be a Christian and not go to church just like a zebra is still a zebra when it's separated from the herd and being eaten by a lion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The devil would keep us away from one another or tempt us to wallow in our failures or try to keep us puffed up so that we are unwilling to admit our wrongs and humbly confess them before others that they might see and learn. Healthy church communities will be what Matt Chandler calls safe but not soft. Safe enough to share sins, doubt, and struggles, but hard on sin as we dispel darkness together. Satan wants you alone, friend. Do you know that? He wants you to have shallow community based on similarities rather than being in deep community bound only by commonality in Jesus. You think about 
the beauty of meaningful relationships across age, class, and economic status. Older can pour into younger and say, this is where I learn what I learned from my failure and help walk alongside them. Even beyond the idea of failure, seeing someone walk through a painful circumstance that you have walked through and being able to come alongside them and help them navigate it so that they won't waste their trials and rely on God in their hardship. That is your duty, my friend. Friend, nothing happens to you for no reason. Do you realize this? God is so unbelievably sovereign and rules with such meticulous providence that everything that happens in your life, whether good or bad, whether because of Satan or simply a normal pain of life resulting from living in a fallen world, everything is under the loving hand of God for your good, for the church's good and his glory. Why does God, why does Jesus allow Peter to go through this failure? Why does he allow you to fail and fall and struggle. You know, in the highlands of Scotland, sometimes the sheep will wander off and they'll get stuck in these crags on the side of cliffs. And they'll get trapped in these dangerous ledges and they, they can't get themselves out. You know why they do that? That They'll see some grass down there that sort of looks good and they'll leap off to get it. And when the shepherd finds it stuck in this crag, he won't go get it right away. Sometimes he'll leave it there for days. You know why? So that it will tire itself out and become so weak that it won't be able to stand. Because if the shepherd went to get it right away, it would struggle and leap, which would cause it to fall to its death. So the shepherd waits till its strength is gone, then he ties a rope to himself and goes over to rescue the stranded sheep. God allows us to fail to fall and struggle so that we'll get to a point we realize we have no strength of our own and thus need to rely on him. So we could go back to the fold and say, hey, if you see some grass on the ledge that looks good to eat, it's not worth it. Okay. Don't try it. Trust the shepherd. Said Calvin Miller, tripping is embarrassing, but I've learned that where we stumble is the place we dig for gold. Where we trip is where the treasure lies. And Peter will learn this, and so must we. But finally, let's consider one more point. One final point. Point three. You will be hated. There's your warning. But so was Jesus. There's your encouragement. So be ready. You will be hated. But so was Jesus. So be ready. After predicting Peter's denial, Jesus moves on to another topic, and he asks his disciples if they remember when they went out previously to minister to the nation, how they were to leave behind their money bag, sandals, and knapsacks. You might remember in chapters 9 and 10 of Luke how Jesus sent out the disciples and then the 72 to go and preach the kingdom, and they weren't to take any provisions with them, but rely on the hospitality of people. You guys remember that? Back in chapter 9 and 10, Back in 2014 when we were going through there. So Jesus asked if they remember. That just means we've been in a long time, okay, for people who didn't get the joke. Jesus asked if they remember that, right, and how they didn't need to take any provisions. They, they affirmed, yes, we remember. They had no lack. Well, says Jesus, it's not like that anymore. Okay. You need to take provisions with you when you go out now. Okay. Why did he say this? Is, that, is it that God took care of them before, and then now he won't? No, of course not. Jesus is saying, things are changing now because the nation and the world has made its decision about me. They were previously hospitable because they still hadn't decided on Jesus and his ministry, but now they have decided, and they have decided to reject him. So Jesus is going to be crucified among insurrectionists and terrorists, and the world has decided they don't want him, so expect that kind of treatment. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, when Jesus tells them, you see, he says, take a sword. This should be seen as symbolic for preparation and pressure, not an advocacy for revenge or violence. Jesus never advocates violence as part of the mission of his people. And in fact, again, if you just look down at your text, he will rebuke the use of a sword in this very chapter. 
Jesus is pointing to readiness, not revenge. Now look, you see the disciples say, look, Jesus, we have two swords. Jesus says, it's enough. Not in the way that means that's enough swords, but that's enough of this discussion. <laughs> that's what he's saying there. Because the disciples missed the point once again. Jesus is telling them that they will have few friends and many enemies because of their identification with him. So they need to be ready for that reality. And so should we. The servant is not greater than his or her master. If Jesus was hated, so will his followers be. They gave Jesus a crown of thorns, said Luther. How can we expect a crown of roses? You think of the persecuted church again around the world. You hear from people who go to work with them, visit them, hear their stories of prison, cruel conditions, being removed from their family for no other reason than that they identify with Christ. And they must meet underground, right? Travel for hours to get together. And while they gather, they know the door could get kicked in at any time and all of them will be arrested or maybe executed by the state. You know what you will not find among them? Self-pity. And why? For this simple reason. This is how Jesus said it would be. Because this is how he was treated. Why should we expect a better life? The ordinary Christian life the ordinary Christian who is pursuing faithfulness and Christ-likeness, who is denying themselves and taking up a cross, who's proclaiming the glory and ethic of Jesus should face difficulty and rejection. Now, this doesn't mean we go out of our way to be insufferable, right? Or rude or mean in order to be hated. But we, we are hated because of Jesus' name, not because of our own ability to be irritating. The fact is that we're supposed to be so full of Jesus, so committed to his ethic, so unwilling to compromise for our own ease or comfort or popularity, so convinced that this world is not our home, that the world should hate us for it. And if we aren't, if we're living this life and no one really gives a rip, and our preaching of the gospel, insisting on the kingdom, Rejecting calls to compromise evokes no ire from unbelievers around us. It could be that we are too full of the world for them to make a distinction between us and unbelievers like them. Does your life look different from your unbelieving friends? Does your life look even different from your nominal Christian friends or neighbors or family members? David Platt said this, the reality we must face is this. The danger of our lives increases in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. Everyone who wants a safe, carefree life from danger should stay away from Jesus. The world responds with hostility to him. So as we are conformed to Christ, more and more the world will respond to us more and more as they responded to him. If you want to avoid being betrayed, hated, or persecuted, then don't become like Christ. We are so prone, he says, to sit back and settle for religious routine and comfortable Christianity because it's safe. And the world likes us in that mode. As long as we live lives just like everyone else, going to church on Sunday, keeping our faith to ourselves, we will face little risk in this world. And the only problem is that we will know so little of Christ. But when we do know Christ and when we're becoming like him and proclaiming him, things will not be easy for us. The more Christ is manifest in your life and your family the harder it will get for you in this world. Friend, they numbered the king of glory among the transgressors. The spotless lamb. The one who came and invited people to new life. Who healed the sick, blind, and lame. Who loved the unlovely. They nailed him to a tree and called him cursed. And even that was to fulfill what God ordained before the foundation of the world. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 37? Scripture must be fulfilled. It must. This is divine imperative. It has to be fulfilled. This is a necessity. And it must be fulfilled in Jesus. And what must be fulfilled? What the prophet Isaiah said of the suffering servant. He was numbered among the transgressors. 
What's it say next in Isaiah 53? I'll tell you. It says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a gospel. John Calvin explained it like this. He said, Christ was subject to the condemnation which we deserved and was reckoned among transgressors that we who are transgressors and loaded with crimes might be presented by him to the Father as righteous, for we are reckoned pure and free from sins before God because the lamb who was pure and free from every blemish was placed in our room. The king of all things died a shameful death. And he went willingly to fulfill scripture, to bear your sins on his perfect shoulders, to bear your past, present, and future failures and denials, to bear your shame and arrogance and selfishness, to offer you flowing streams of grace that never cease. Why? So that you could be his treasured possession. So that even the desires of the devil to have you need to go through him. All the while he intercedes for you. So that when the devil comes after you, you have strength available for the battle. So that even your failures could be used for good. To offer forgiveness to your repentance a million times. So that when the world hates you, it's for his name's sake and vindication awaits you in the end. Have you never gone to him and cast yourself upon him? Call on him today and he will forgive your sins. Christian. Are you struggling with a sin you cannot or don't want to shake? Call out to him and rely on his strength and not your abilities. Do you feel Satan is tempting you to despair or to think you're too sinful or messed up too big for Christ to forgive you? Don't believe his lies. Go to Christ. Cast yourself upon him. Repent, and he will freely forgive. Are you trepidatious and afraid of what others might think of you if you give yourself too much of Christ? Go to him and ask him to remind your heart that he is enough for you and to be bold and to trust in his provisions. You are here today because of a divine appointment. Regardless of who you are, there's something God has laid on your heart today unless you've hardened your heart against his word. So go to him, call on him as one who is numbered among the transgressors for you and he will hear you and he will answer. 